The scripture reading for today comes from Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. Now from Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You can be seated. And good morning again and welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin. If I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet. This morning, we are concluding our sermon series on the book of Acts. Although, as you can likely tell from the scripture text, we haven't actually made it to the end of Acts yet. There are still eight more chapters, but Acts chapter 20 is where the series must end as I transition away from preaching weekly. But Acts 20 is actually a pretty good passage to end on because it's the only speech in the entire book of Acts that's given entirely to Christians to a church. It's Paul speaking to the elders at the church at Ephesus, and most likely it's not a speech meant only for elders. It's a speech for the whole church. And listen to what happens when Paul's speech ends. 
what we just heard from verses 36 through 38. And when Paul had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. I mean, what a response, right? There's kneeling and praying. There's weeping and embracing. There's men kissing men. I mean, you know it's serious that these guys are kissing Paul. And so what did he say? Why were the Ephesians so moved? What had formed the church at Ephesus to be so moved emotionally by Paul and his speech? Well, that's going to be our focus today. What does Paul's ministry in Ephesus, what does his speech to the Ephesians, what does their response to Paul tell us about the marks of a church that is shaped and being shaped by the gospel? And so as we seek to answer that question, uh, we're going to look more closely at Acts chapter 20, and we'll have three points, which are three marks of a gospel-shaped church. Not all the marks, but three of them, and they are one— humility, two, mission, and three, care. Humility, mission, and care. And so let's begin with that first point and the first mark of a gospel-shaped church, humility. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes all these letters as if a senior demon is giving advice to a junior demon about how to tempt and sway and lead astray a human that the junior demon is responsible for. And in one letter, the senior demon says that he is very alarmed to hear from the junior demon that his patient, that's what they call the humans, he's very alarmed to hear that his patient has become humble. And so he says, this is very bad. I see only one thing to do at the moment. Draw your patient's attention to the fact that he has become humble. All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. And this is especially true of humility. Get him to think, by Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately, pride, pride at his own humility will appear. He goes on to say that the enemy, which is God to the demons, the enemy uses humility to turn the man's attention away from himself to God and neighbor. And so they must work to conceal from the patient the true end of humility. Make him think that humility isn't really self-forgetfulness. Humility is a low opinion of himself, a low opinion of his own talent and characters, because at least then the man will still be thinking about himself and not of God or neighbor. You see, the demons scheme like crazy to topple this man's humility because it's dangerous to them. It's dangerous to demons because the presence of humility, true humility, the danger of humility is that it means someone's life has been shaped by the gospel. It means that the the gospel has sunk in deep into their hearts, and the demons do not want that. In our passage, Paul describes his time in Ephesus as a time where he served in humility. Verses 18 through 19 say, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with 
tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul served the Lord in Ephesus with all humility. Now, in general, there are kind of two main ways to think about what it means to be humble or to practice humility. And so, first, humility means thinking of yourself realistically. It's not having too high a view of yourself, but it's also not having too low a view of yourself. It's having just the right view of yourself, the Goldilocks view of yourself. You have strengths and you have weaknesses. You know some things and you don't know some things. And so that's the first way to think of humility. It's an accurate view of yourself. Not too high, not too low, just right. But then the second way, to think about humility is considering yourself as less important than others or considering the interests of others as more important than your own. Now, that doesn't mean that you or your interests are objectively less important. It just means that you treat yourself or you treat the interests of others as more important. That's humility. That's humbling yourself, having a realistic view of yourself and treating yourself as less important and others as more important. Now, Paul mentions two more things regarding how he served the Lord, which all flow from humility. He says he served with all humility and with tears and with trials with tears and trials. And I think that there's humility in Paul pointing out his tears and trials. If Paul served with tears, then that means that there were times that he was pushed to his limit, either tears of pain or tears of sadness or tears of whatever. When we cry, uh, it's because we've been overcome with emotion, right? Which means that Paul was saying that in the course of serving the Lord in Ephesus, he reached points where he was overcome and cried. That's a humble thing to admit. Paul also mentions trials. And again, to admit that you've gone through trials means that you were in a situation where you didn't know for sure what to do, or you didn't know for sure if you had what it took to persevere. That's what makes a trial a trial. And We know what kind of trials Paul has been through, right? Back in Acts 14, he was stoned within an inch of death and dragged outside the city and left to die. I mean, not just humbling for Paul, humiliating. You know, what would you do if that happened to you? I don't know what I would do, but it would be a trial, right? A trial is, I mean, it would really be an understatement. And so Paul is reflecting on his time serving the Lord in Ephesus, and what characterizes it is humility. He was pushed to the point of tears. He was tried and tested over and over again. His weaknesses were exposed. His limits were reached. He didn't always know what he was supposed to do or what he was going to do. Have you ever reached points like that? Has a trial ever pushed you to your limits? Have you ever been so overcome by a trial that the only thing you could do was cry. And I would guess that most of us have reached points like that and that the rest of us are lying. We all reach points like that at one point or another, and if you truly haven't, you will. 
Because life is often overwhelming. There are an infinite number of trials we can face in this life. There are an infinite number of things that can bring us to tears, sickness, abuse, death, breakups, job loss, marital strife, you name it, the list is infinite. And we are painfully finite. We're weak. We're foolish. We don't know everything. It's okay to admit that. It's humble to admit that. Some things overwhelm us. Some things make us cry. Some things confuse us. Some things we don't know. Some things we can't do. The gospel of Jesus Christ frees us up to admit that. You don't have to pretend you're strong when you're actually weak. In fact, you actually can't receive the gospel unless you're weak. You know, in some sense, humility isn't one Christian characteristic among many. It's the Christian characteristic that precedes all others. You can't really be a Christian without first, in humility, admitting that you have need, that you have weakness. Now, notice, though, that Paul's humility does not stop him from preaching and teaching the word of God with confidence. He says in verses 20 through 21, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul really shows us how to thread the needle. He served the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. And at the same time, he did not shrink down from teaching anything that was profitable, publicly or privately, to Jew or to Gentile. He did not shrink down from declaring repentance and faith. In fact, he goes even further. Later in the passage, in verse 27, Paul says again, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel. Not just the essentials of saving faith, you know, humility, repentance, faith in Jesus Christ, but the whole counsel of God. Everything that God has to say about everything. The whole counsel of God. Are you submitted to the whole counsel of God? Or are there some parts that you're tempted to downplay or just ignore altogether? You know, maybe what the whole counsel of God says about sex or what it says about rest, or what it says about money, or what it says about mission, or what it says about mercy, or what it says about justice. Are you submitted to the whole counsel of God? You know, Paul's repetition of not shrinking down from declaring repentance and faith and the whole counsel of God can seem to contradict humility, right? Paul seems pretty confident, pretty insistent. How is that humble. Well, it's humble because faith and repentance and the whole counsel of God don't derive from Paul. They don't derive from you either. They don't derive from any human. They come from God. And so to insist on declaring and embodying faith and repentance and the whole counsel of God, that's actually a natural act of humility. In fact, if you only submit to some parts of God's word but not others, that's incredibly prideful because you've put yourself above scriptures as its judge. That's prideful, actually. 
but submitting to the whole counsel of God's word, seeing ourselves rightly before God, considering God's interests above our own, that's humility. That requires humility. You have to have humility to repent. You have to have humility to believe. You have to have humility to submit yourself to the whole counsel of God. But what's crazy is that God himself actually practiced humility. I mean, in the first sense, God does see himself perfectly clearly. It just so happens to be that there are none greater than him. But more shockingly, in the second sense, Jesus treats us as if we are more important than him. There are none greater than him, and yet he has treated us as if we were greater. He considered our interests before his own when he went to the cross. That's what Philippians 2 says, Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our greatest fear when it comes to humility and treating others' interests as more important than our own is that no one will consider our interests. If I'm always considering others' interests, then no one will consider my interests. But if you're in Christ, that's not true. Jesus has considered your interests. Jesus has considered your interests as more important than his own. Jesus humbled himself, even was humiliated for you. So let us embody then humility more and more as the gospel shapes us as individuals and shapes us as a church. Humility is a mark of a gospel-shaped church. So that's humility. But let's move on now to our second point and another mark of a gospel-shaped church, mission. One of my favorite movies of all time is Saving Private Ryan. It's a a war movie from World War II. It begins on D-Day and the invasion on the beach of Normandy. And so, you know, viewer discretion advised. But the whole plot of the movie is a mission given to a small group of soldiers, and the mission is to save Private Ryan, the title of the movie. And the soldiers struggle with this mission. Why does this one soldier get an entire mission devoted to saving him and sending him home? They all want to go home. Why should they commit themselves to this mission to save one guy? Well, the order to complete this particular mission came all the way from the top, from General George C. Marshall. And the general gave this mission because he had found out that Private Ryan had three brothers who had all been killed in action, two in Normandy and one in New Guinea. And their mother was going to receive three telegrams from the U.S. Army on the same day, back to back to back, notifying her of the deaths of her three sons. And so the general wanted to make sure that the army did not need to send her a fourth telegram. And so he commissions these soldiers to save Private Ryan, to bring him home from behind enemy lines. 
And despite all their personal interests, the first and foremost being their own survival and them making it back home, but despite all that, they didn't count their lives as more valuable or more precious, and they go through with the mission. They risk it all. They commit themselves to the mission of saving Private Ryan. Our whole passage occurs because Paul and the church at Ephesus are committed to a mission. And because of that mission, Paul is leaving Ephesus for Jerusalem. Verses 22 through 23 say, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Kind of scary, right? And Paul says he's going to Jerusalem because the Spirit is leading him to. And he also says that he doesn't know what's going to happen to him there. Only that the Holy Spirit always testifies to him that when he goes to a new city, imprisonment and affliction await. You know, if, if you or me had a sense that going to this city or going to that town would likely mean being arrested and thrown in prison, we probably wouldn't go. But Paul, knowing that that's likely what awaits for him in Jerusalem, is still planning to go. Why? Why would Paul still go to Jerusalem? Well, he tells us in verse 24. Paul says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace, of the grace of God. He's going to Jerusalem in order to finish his course, to finish the ministry that he received from the Lord Jesus Christ, namely, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, to testify to the good news that God isn't harsh. God isn't unforgiving. He's gracious. He's merciful. Forgiveness of sins is possible through faith in Christ who died on the cross to pay for those sins. So Paul doesn't consider his life more valuable or more precious. Notice the language of humility again. Paul doesn't count his life as more valuable or more precious than pressing on and what the Lord Jesus has called him to do, sharing the good news of Jesus. So said another way, Paul is leaving Ephesus and going to Jerusalem for the sake of the mission. Now, that word, mission, it gets thrown around a lot. You know, Paul actually doesn't even use the word mission here, but I'm saying that it's for the sake of the mission that he's going to Jerusalem. And so what is the mission? Well, there are a couple passages in Scripture that scholars and theologians and the church throughout history have considered to lay out the mission, or the Great Commission, as it's sometimes called. One such passage was actually in the first chapter of Acts, Acts 1.8, which is the last thing that Jesus says before he ascends up to heaven. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we can see a clear connection to what Paul says in our passage to Acts 1.8. Jesus says to his followers that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And Paul, in our passage, in verse 22, says that he is constrained by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in Acts 1.8 that his followers will be his witnesses. And what do witnesses do? They testify. What does Paul say in our passage? In verse 24, he says that he's going to testify. 
to the gospel of grace of God. And so there's a clear connection to what Paul is doing here and the mission that Jesus laid out in Acts 1.8. The other major passage that people typically point to as a description of the mission of the church or the Great Commission is Matthew 28.18-20. And again, this is a portrayal of Jesus' last words to his followers before he ascends up to heaven. This is what he says. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Very similar to Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 says, go to the ends of the earth. Matthew 28 says, go to all nations. Acts 1.8 says, to be Jesus's witnesses. Matthew 28 expounds a bit on what that means. To be Jesus's witnesses means making disciples. It means baptizing them. It means teaching all that Jesus commanded them. That's the mission. And notice, there's actually a bit of recursion going on in that Matthew 28 formulation of the mission. And so the mission is to make disciples, which first of all means evangelism and conversion. That's what baptism implies. And second, it also means discipleship, spiritual or Christian formation. That's what teaching all that Jesus commanded implies. But that's not all. If you're teaching all that Jesus commands, and this is where the recursion comes in, that includes this very command to make disciples through evangelism and discipleship. And so the mission isn't just to make disciples. The mission is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples for the rest of history. And that's crucial. If you miss the recursive part of the mission, then the mission dies out in one generation, right? The mission isn't just to make disciples. It's to make disciple makers, is to reach people with the gospel for the first time, see them convert and be baptized, and then train them in the faith to disciple them, and to disciple them to the point that one day they themselves could make more disciples. That's the mission, to make disciple makers. And a church that's shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ commits itself to the mission of making disciple makers. Are you willing to commit yourself to that mission of making disciple makers? Do you have the humility to accept God's course and ministry and mission above your own? You know, which is going to be more valuable to you, your vision for your life or God's? What's going to be more precious to you, God's mission or your missions? You know, your mission for your kids to get full-ride scholarships to college, your mission to have business success, your mission to be busy, to get a raise, to be significant, to buy a bigger house, to be cool, to buy a new car, to go on that expensive trip, to be beautiful, to be comfortable. What to be your mission to be whatever. What are some of the missions you've planned for your life that sometimes get in the way of participation in God's mission? And look, They don't have to be mutually exclusive, obviously, but there will be times where remaining committed to God's mission may mean failing one of your missions. Are you willing to fail at some of your missions if doing so is what it takes to remain committed to God's mission? 
And look, New Life Fremont is just one local church within the universal church. You don't have to do everything, everywhere, in every possible way. But what is New Life's particular contribution? What is New Life's particular form of participation in God's greater and overarching mission going to be? You don't have to reach everyone. You don't have to do everything. But what can you do? What will you do? What has God uniquely positioned New Life Fremont to do? What has God called you to do? You know, do you know what New Life Fremont's mission and values have been in recent years? Do you know what it says under mission and values on our website? Do you care about New Life's mission and values? I hope you care, because it matters that you care. It can't just be a pastor who cares. It needs to be an entire church who cares. It needs to be the whole congregation. All of you need to care about the mission and values for this, this thing to work. And look, you know, whether you remember what it says on our website right now isn't really the point. I'm not going to read it to you, mainly because that's probably not who we are anymore. Don't get me wrong, I think the previous mission and values were good, but they're not the only good formulation of how a local church can participate in God's mission. What's more important than what our website says right now is what will it say in the future? What do you want it to say? Who will you be, New Life? What will your participation in God's mission be in the future? It matters that you care about that. Don't just sign off on whatever the next pastor says. Yeah, 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 whatever you say is fine. That's not good enough. What do you want it to be? What do you want the next pastor to help lead you into? How has God made you individually, corporately? How has God gifted you specifically for his mission? What is the Holy Spirit constraining you to do just like Paul was constrained. What is the Holy Spirit constraining you to do here in the Tri-Cities, in the Bay Area? And of course, for there to be any hope of motivation to care for this mission, you have to remember that you actually are Jesus's mission, right? Jesus commanded his followers to testify to the ends of the earth. You're it. You are the end of the earth. Jesus commanded his followers to make disciples of all nations. You are it. You are the nations. You're Jesus's mission. Why did he leave heaven? What was his mission? To bring you home. God the Father said to Jesus, I have children behind enemy lines. Go find them and bring them home. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Either you were lost or your ancestors were lost, and Jesus came to seek and to save you. And he's not done seeking and saving. He's still on mission, and he invites you to join him. A gospel-shaped church will join him in that mission. Humility is a mark of a gospel-shaped church. Mission is a mark of of a gospel-shaped church. Let's move on now to our final point and one more mark of a gospel-shaped church, care. You know, ever since I started cycling so much, I've had to learn how to care for my bike. And I don't just mean emotionally to care for my bike, although I do. Like if it were to be stolen or if I were to crack my frame, I, I can't even think about that right now. But I don't just mean to care for my bike emotionally. I care for it practically and pretty consistently. I do things like clean my chain. I will degrease it, 
clean it, get all the dirt and particles out of it, and then I'll reapply fresh lubrication so that everything runs smoothly. I'll often clean the entire bike while I'm at it with soap and water, hose it down, spray disc brake cleaner on my rotors and calipers. I'll check to make sure that the gearing is indexed correctly so that it shifts smoothly from top to bottom. I'll check my tire pressure from time to time, add more air when needed. I run my tires tubeless, which means I have a liquid sealant in there. The liquid sealant will clog and seal any holes that get poked in the tire. I'll uh, check the level of that sealant from time to time, let all the air out, stick a little dipstick in there, see if it's still liquid. I, I do all these things, and even more that I'll spare you from hearing about, in order to care for my bike. I pay careful attention to my bike. I maintain it consistently. I do my best to keep it in tip-top shape. In our passage, Paul tells the church at Ephesus to care for a number of things, to pay careful attention to some things, not just emotionally to care about these things, but practically care for these things. And Paul says this to them. Uh, Paul says to them uh, in verse 25, uh, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Paul's telling them, this is the last time I'm going to see you. This is the last time I'm going to speak to you. This is what I want to leave you with. These are my parting words, my parting instructions, my charge to the church at Ephesus. And his, his last words to the church at Ephesus are to care. Sometimes he uses different words, but essentially everything Paul says here could be summarized by caring, to care. And so first, in verse 28, Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. Pay careful attention, care for these people, attend to these people. You know, care and attention really go hand in hand, right? To care for something is to pay attention to it. We pay attention to things that we care about. And so Paul says to pay attention to, to care for yourselves, which is a relief, right? Paul actually instructs some self-care here. But not just self-care like we think about it, also an attention to ensure that you're staying in step with the gospel and sound doctrine. Pay attention to yourself. Pay attention to your walk. Care for it. But not just yourselves. Paul also says to care for the flock, the, the local church that you belong to, one another. Care for the flock. And not just the local church. Paul says to care for the church of God, the, the holy Catholic church, which is just another way of saying the universal church. Care about the church here and everywhere. Why? Because God obtained it with his own blood. Jesus bled and died for the entire church. So care for it. All of it. Not just your church. Every church. The whole church. Care for it. But Paul then continues to warn about what might threaten them or the flock or the whole church. Verses 29 through 31. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Watch out for these threats, Paul says. Be alert. 
wolves which prey on sheep, false teachers who speak twisted things and try to draw away the disciples after them. Pay careful attention to ensure that does not happen. Be alert. Watch out. There are wolves that want to hurt you. There are false teachers seeking to lead you astray. Take care that that does not happen. And then one more instruction to care. Verse 35. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Work hard so that you can care, not primarily for yourselves, but so that you can care for the weak, care for the poor, and give more than you seek to receive. You know, it's interesting Sometimes Paul's words about caring for the weak and the poor can almost seem like an afterthought, something he tacks on at the end of other things he's saying. This passage actually reminded me of Galatians 2, where Paul spends nine verses explaining how he has been accepted by the apostles. And then really quickly in verse 10, he says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And then he moves on. But I think what's actually going on is that caring for the weak and the poor isn't an afterthought for Paul. It's more of a no-duh. Of course we're going to care for the weak and the poor. It's the very thing that I'm eager to do. It's the most obvious practical application of the gospel. When we were weak, Jesus became weak in order to save us and make us strong. When we were poor, Jesus became poor in order to save us so that we might become rich. It's just really not that complicated. The gospel of Jesus Christ compels care for the poor and the weak. It's a no-brainer of an application. Help the weak. Give to the poor. Care for them. And so Paul tells the church at Ephesus, care for yourselves. Care for the flock. Care for the entire church of God. Watch out for fierce wolves and false teachers. Care for the weak and the poor. These are Paul's final instructions to the church at Ephesus. And this kind of care is a mark of a gospel-shaped church. And look, normally, this is where I would say, what are some ways we can apply Paul's instructions to the church at Ephesus to care in all these ways? How ought we care in our own context, present day and in the Bay Area? And that would be a worthwhile discussion, but I'm sure you can think of ways that we ought to pay careful attention to ourselves and the church and all churches, avoid fierce wolves and false teachers, have a better eye for helping the weak and giving to the poor. But what I want to focus on as we kind of conclude here is not our careful attention toward others, but Jesus's careful attention toward us. Not because our careful attention to all these things that Paul mentions are unimportant, but Because if we set out to obey all these things without a sense of how Jesus fulfills them in our lives, we won't get very far. You know, a seminary professor of mine opened my eyes to something from a famous story about Jesus and Peter walking on the water. That's always stuck with me. It's sort of been a paradigm for how I think about my relationship with Jesus. And so as the story goes in Matthew 16, The disciples are on a boat going across the sea, and it's windy. The boat is being beaten by the waves. But then the disciples see someone walking on the sea, and they're terrified. They think that it's a ghost until Jesus speaks to them. And he says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And so then Peter says, if it is you, Lord, command me to come out to you on the water. And so Jesus says, 
come. And Peter gets out of the boat, and he walks on the water to Jesus. But then Peter sees the wind, and he sees the waves, and he's afraid, and he begins to sink. You know, when he was keeping his eyes on Jesus, he seemed to be doing fine. But once he took his eyes off and looked at the wind and looked at the waves, he sank. And so Peter is sinking, and he, he cries out, save me. And immediately, Jesus reaches out his hand and takes a hold of Peter. And he says, oh, you of little faith. Not you of no faith. You of little faith. You of some faith. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And he takes them back to the boat. They get in together, and everyone on the boat worships Jesus. Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, the normal lesson that people take away from the story is don't take your eyes off of Jesus. If you take your eyes off of Jesus and look at the proverbial wind and waves, if you focus on your circumstances, you will sink. Instead, have faith and look to Jesus. And that's a fine application. There's nothing wrong with it. But there's something more important going on in this story. There's something more important to take away. Instead of focusing on where Peter's eyes are, instead of focusing on where your eyes are, focus on where Jesus's eyes are. Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, but Jesus never took his eyes off of Peter. Jesus was right there, ready to reach out and save Peter the moment he began seeking. And he's right there with you, too, ready to reach out and save you the moment you begin sinking. We all take our eyes off of Jesus sometimes, but Jesus will never take his eyes off of you. A gospel-shaped church is a church that knows that Jesus never takes his eyes off of them. It's a church that knows that greater than their ability to care for others is Jesus' ability to care for them. Think about where we were a little more than a year ago and everything that's happened since then. All the fears and uncertainty we felt when we began this interim season between lead pastors. I remember Hebrews 11.8 sticking out so much in that season. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. In a lot of ways, that was us, right? We were going out into this interim year, not knowing where we were going, not knowing what was next, but going anyway, because God is trustworthy. He would have his eyes on us and be with us each step of the way. Jesus has been paying attention to new life. Jesus has been caring for us through the regathering post-pandemic in person, inside for worship, taking the Lord's Supper again, through the By Faith Sermon Series, through the Consultant Weekend, through the Month of Lament, through the Pastor Search, all the way to today, where we're ready to call the next pastor. Jesus has been paying careful attention to us this past year. He's been paying careful attention to each and every one of you. When your eyes were on him and when your eyes were off of him, when you were walking by faith and when you were walking by sight, Jesus has been paying careful attention to you. He has never taken his eyes off of you, and he never will. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you that your eyes are always on us, that you pay careful attention to us. Father, we admit all the ways that we lack humility. We admit all the ways that we lose sight of the mission. We admit all the ways that we fail to pay careful attention to the things you care about. Forgive us for these things, Father. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and daily remind us that Jesus has always been caring for us. Pray this all in his name. Amen.